Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So um, I'm Minesh Parbat. I'm currently um, on secondment as the chief pharmacist for an integrated care system within the West Midlands in England. Um, and I'm also an independent prescriber and I work for with a number of higher education institutes, uh, both undergraduate and postgraduate as well. Where there are challenges, there's also opportunities and um, very much want to kind of embrace some of those opportunities to you know, develop the pharmacy workforce because that's going to be top of my agenda. Uh, and absolutely, that's something I'm going to be talking about today around the history and evolution of the independent prescribing course and undergraduate and postgraduate level as well. But it's have we got all our ducks lined up to be able to embrace what the future is going to hold? And the future, we talk about the future, you know, we're talking about 2026 and 2026 is when the first cohort of pharmacists will be coming out as independent prescribers, you know, and that's a massive paradigm shift to what, when I was at university, uh, to what it is like now. And then you can just start to beginning to, you can just only start beginning to understand and comprehend the, the change in the course at undergraduate level, you know, more of a clinical skills, more uh, case-based discussions, more experiential learning, absolutely a lot more hands-on and, you know, um, it, it hurts me to say I really enjoyed compounding, you know, making up those, uh, those creams, gels, suppositories and, and so forth. That was good fun. Tableting and compounding. It may not be everyone's cup of tea, but it was the bread and butter of that undergraduate course. And it's really, really quite interesting. So absolutely, there's been the shift. And, you know, community pharmacy, uh, we've got this new scheme launching in uh, England called Pharmacy First. Scotland have already started to do well, been doing it for some time, but it, it means that patients get more access to care and it means that patients can see their pharmacy first, pharmacist first, or their, their, go to their pharmacy first to seek advice on common conditions such as UTIs, you know, conjunctivitis and so forth. So yeah, loads, to, loads, loads of opportunity, loads to be done. So I look forward to embracing those challenges. Thank you. So for the Australian audience, I don't think anyone's had any um, catch up for a long time on what's happened in the UK. So um, please give us as much information as you can. And in Australia, we're still, um, uh, well, I don't know, we've just introduced 60 day dispensing, just telling you where we are. And we're still talking about prescribing. Nothing's wow. happened with supplementary or independent. And um, they're doing some UTI trials where they're actually gathering data and to basically prove that it's a cost-effective and quality um, service and they're rolling out across the states. So that's probably where we are. So we're very far behind. So it's very exciting to kind of hear what's happening in the UK and how things have been implemented and measured and funded and, yeah. Absolutely. So I think what we need to do in the first instance is look at the history and progress 
of the independent prescribing course for pharmacists within the UK, which has actually gone on a, a, like a transformative journey that has reshaped the role of pharmacists overall within the healthcare systems. And this has been done through comprehensive analysis and uh and there is a lot of history behind this and the history kind of shapes how what how, how legislation was actually changed the course of the structure the course structure so you know at postgraduate level and what impact it's going to actually have on patients but there were also challenges as well on that journey so and that's really kind of paved way what the future direction of the independent prescribing course for pharmacists uh, is is going to be like and is like within the UK. So let's go into the history. So traditional role of pharmacists, as we all know, primarily focused on dispensing of medicines uh, prescribed by GPs. Um, this went underwent a big paradigm shift in the early 2000s and recognising the need for a more collaborative and more patient-centred approach to healthcare. Policymakers got involved, our professional body, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society got involved and our regulator got involved as well. And this, the whole aim of this is to empower pharmacists to make, make sure they're taking an active role in the role of uh, in predominantly around patient management. And this was a turning point uh, and came with a legislative chain, legislation change in 2006 that allowed pharmacists to undertake additional training to become independent prescribers. This marked the beginning of a new era uh, where pharmacists could contribute not only to dispensing of medication, but the diagnosis and treatment decisions aligning a broader, aligning with broader goals to improving patient access to the healthcare services. When we look at the course overall, so that's the history, that's the context of it. When we go into the early structure of the course, well, in the initial stages of the independent prescribing course, the course was offered typically as a postgraduate diploma or a master's degree. The course was then was delivered predominantly by higher education institutes such as universities, which are accredited by the General Pharmaceutical Council. The curriculum predominantly was aligned to pharmacological, uh, clinical assessments and consultation skills, preparing these pharmacists for extended responsibilities that came with independent prescribing. There had to be a change. We knew that, uh, you know, real world scenarios are absolutely different. Um, you know, working in a clinical setting, which I have as an independent prescriber in general practice uh, or primary healthcare, as it's probably better known internationally, um, things needed to change. So in 2013, a significant change happened uh, to the independent prescribing course. The qualification became a lot more streamlined it, it into a single standardised course, so a postgraduate certificate, uh, making it more accessible to a broad range of pharmacists. We don't, we didn't want to individualise. You know, if you're only working in primary healthcare or in general practice, that you only be able to access this, or if you're working in hospital, you only be able to access this. We wanted to be more, most include more inclusive and ensure that people are able to access this expert in medicines on the high street or being in general practice, being in hospital to be able to get the care that they actually need. These modifications aim to create a consistent and a more efficient 
training course and allowed pharmacists to complete the course while continuing to work in their existing roles as well. We didn't want to take them out entirely. You know, a service still needs to be delivered and we need to make it uh, employee and employer friendly as well. So there needs to be that collaboration. And in doing that, that was a really pivotal moment in you know, experiential learning, hands-on training, making sure that you've got that, um, you know, you've got the supervisory support. That's absolutely important when you're actually undertaking the, um, the, the course overall. Then what we need to look at, look at is the progress and recognition of um, the independent prescribing course. So this is looking at integration of pharmacists within the healthcare teams. The progression of the independent prescribing course paralleled the integration of pharmacists prescribers within the healthcare settings. The predominant shift was and focus was in hospital and in primary care, where we're seeing a vast majority of pharmacists undertaking their prescribing. But there was this real big value in having these pharmacists working within these multidisciplinary healthcare teams. And what we found is that there's a reduction in workload there was a, a directed um, flow of patients. So if a medication query uh, um, was needed to be sorted or supported, then the pharmacist would be the best per individual to be able to manage that um, request. We saw the advent of medication reviews and structured medication reviews that enhancement to provide a more holistic medication support uh, to our patients using our independent prescribing course overall. And this has had a positive impact on, on patients overall. This has meant that there needs to be a regulatory framework shift, there needs to be greater governance in, in, in place. And this is where the scope of practice for a pharmacist is really, really important, working in their bounds of competence. One of the things that I would like to stress is anyone embarking or any regulator or any under higher education institute looking at embarking on designing or developing or looking at shifting the legislation. What is really important is pharmacists remain pharmacists and pharmacists are expert in medicines. It's really important to ensure that whoever's practicing using that qualification is working within the bounds of competence and their scope of practice. If that competency needs to be enhanced, uh, or needs to be evolved or developed, that's done under, under a comprehensive plan. So what that plan looks like, you know, we, we all know smart objectives. So if a pharmacist wanted to move and develop their skills from say asthma management to hypertension, what does that development opportunity need to look like? And what clinical support and supervision is involved? And not just that learning opportunity, but what does this experiential learning opportunity need to look like? What does that infrastructure need to look like to ensure that we've got competent and confident, competent and confident, I say that again, prescribers that work within these healthcare, setting, healthcare settings. That's really, really important. But you know, you've got you've done the theoretical training, um, you've done the experiential learning as well. But after that, what does that supervision and support need to look like after you've deemed yourself competent and confident as well? So using the Miller Triangle, uh, you know, uh, it's just a really good 
um, uh, checking around, you know, your competency is a real good starting point. For instance, there are other models available as well, but making sure that you are able to uh, develop yourself in in the most effective way. So that's the bit of the history around the, the course legislation where we're at around integrating pharmacists into healthcare settings. But there is also what impact this could actually have on patients. And what we know is that expanding the role of pharmacists absolutely within primary care addresses um, uh, an unmet need, um, can improve access, provide in interventions to be done and managed in a timely manner. And what we're seeing now is a shift in pharmacists managing not just acute presentations within general practice, but to managing long term conditions. <clears throat> we know we want patients and people and humans to live happier, longer and healthier and so forth. But ensuring that we've got the right um, individuals and healthcare professionals is, is vitally important as well. And pharmacists play a crucial role in that, particularly around the management of polypharmacy. And we know that 50% of patients based on the literature don't take their medicines as required. We know that in, in, in England, there was a study done that there's almost over 300 million pounds worth of wastage, medicines wasted within the system. You know, uh, that's a significant portion, 90 million pounds of that, which is stockpiled medicines in patients' homes, which is really, really significant. So improving adherence to medicines is gonna be vitally important. And pharmacists prescribers, working in whichever care setting are going to be those expert medicines managers um, to improve those ad adherence to, to medicines overall. Pharmacists, the pharmacist role provides education. So it's not just, um, you know, as an independent prescriber working within that healthcare setting, they're going to be, yes, they're going to be the expert, but they're also going to be that outward facing individual within that multidisciplinary team as well. So providing education and support, not just within that pharmacy team, but to other individuals within um, that care setting also. And this leads me on to the advancements in um, technology as well, so digital technology. This is one of the challenges and where probably there needs to be a bit more of a uh, legislative shift or better leadership or an, an enhancement or better investment. Digital health platforms are really, really going to be absolutely important. So making sure we've got electronic prescribing systems. We've, you know, most of our prescriptions within uh, England go electronically now. And then the paper base, what we call the green form, the traditional green form is, is limited now in use, which is great for the environment, but also makes it great for the patient as well in that, you know, the prescription gets sent electronically to uh, the pharmacy. But that's just from general practice to the community pharmacy, but how can we make the other care settings um, be a bit more electronically savvy as well? And how can we tie up these loose ends? And making sure that we're using telehealth in a more constructive way, how can pharmacists upskill themselves to ensure that they are clinically safe to undertake telehealth um, uh, healthcare systems and uh, to be able to prescribe within that um, area in the, in the most effective way also and making sure that they are competent in, in doing so. So that means that we need to enhance our efficiency, improve our, our communication, our patient en engagement and ultimately improve that care that the patient actually needs. So that, that's really, really important as we move to more and more digital platforms. 
And, you know, I think that the training uh, and development is absolutely needed in that environment, particularly around <clears throat> the postgraduate courses. Uh, at the moment, it's very much hands on. But there needs to be components in there around uh, utilisation of telehealth, uh, because that's, you know, uh, maybe one of the courtesies of COVID has meant that we've had this fast track in using digital technology to serve our patients better. Uh, and But I'm not saying that that's absolutely what we should be doing in its entirety. I absolutely feel that there's clinical value and patient value in doing the face-to-face -face work as well, as we all know, and that that cannot go. Uh, you know, that's my personal opinion, by the way. So technology is there. We need to build the competencies uh, and, and confidence as well to enable ensure that our pharmacists are well equipped for that um, opportunity. Thank you. So you said your first graduates for the independent prescribing will be in 2026. So what yeah. does the course <coughs> involve? What does it look so, like now? Yeah, so so from my understanding and, and working with uh, higher education in, institutes and organisations, uh, the course is going to be, um, as I previously said, the experiential learning is really going to be really quite important. So there's going to be a number of placements uh, throughout the academic year uh, for that, that pharm for those pharmacy students working in various healthcare sectors. So it's going to be a rotation programme from potentially from year one to year four. And there's going to be a skin clinical skills modules that gives you those essential skills to be able to take basic level diagnostics. So that could be blood pressure monitoring, um, understanding how to do chest examination, percuss, palpate, all those um, examination skills that you potentially need to become a proficient um, uh, healthcare professional to conduct basic diagnostics. Yeah, so taking history and so forth. So the undergraduate course will be filled with these opportunities um, to be able to 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 develop yourself as a more proficient um, prescribing pharmacist at that present stage in time. However, what we do know is that it doesn't end there. You know, you you qualify, you you know, you graduate. What needs to happen thereafter is a a, a ongoing training opportunity to further develop these individuals to become competent and confident. You know, there's no way that day one will mean that that's it. I'm going to be able to prescribe. And yes, you will be able to prescribe, but you'd obviously need to undertake a sign off process. So that initial education and training programs can be really vital for the first two years of that foundation pharmacist. And that will mean that you need to have a designated uh, prescribing pharmacist or a, a designated medical practitioner that provides you with that supervision and oversight uh, that looks at you and supports you at an, uh, as, a, as an individual that is going to be a proficient prescriber. So what does that, there needs to be a framework in place uh, to mark, to sign off you as a competent individual that aligns to the regulatory uh, sign off, so the GPHC, uh, uh, and uh, uh, I know for a fact that the World Pharmaceutical Society have got a prescribing framework as well. So it's utilising these um, tools to be able to sign these individuals off to become proficient prescribers, and that there has to be a sign off process. So using your undergraduate learning, and that that's where there's big, big been a big change since um, I did my undergraduate course uh, to to now. 
but then your learning doesn't stop at, as we know, it's lifelong learning, but you, the, 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 for an independent prescribing course, it absolutely doesn't stop there. So these 2026 prescribers will need the support and the training and development opportunities to be able to become confident and competent as well. And you are an independent prescriber as well. So absolutely. can you tell me a little bit about where you work and have a lot of pharmacists in the UK taken up the opportunity of independent prescribing? Um, yeah. And how does it work working with other healthcare professionals as well? There's a real big um, shift in the, the volume of individuals taking up independent prescribing, particularly around in community pharmacy, where there is a big developmental uh, need and support required. So I work currently in general practice in primary health care, and I see not only um, patients to undertake structured medication reviews, but I run clinics, um, general general clinics as well for with patients with medication queries, but my specialist area is respiratory. So I see a lot of asthma patients uh, where I'm uh, titrating their dose up or down or considering referral onwards escalation, uh, managing their um, uh, asthma in the most appropriate way and undertaking follow-ups as well. So that's my area of interest and that's where, you know, I support um, my general practice in in in, in those uh, with that, that cohort of patients. And I've been doing that for some years now, but that's taken some time in developing my areas of competence and becoming confident at, um, uh, you know, uh, supporting that um, those uh, those patients overall and offering value to the GP practice as well, the general practice that I work in. Um, I think what what we will look look to do and I would like to do and continue to do is to build my competencies as well. And I have done that branching out into hypertension management, looking at heart failure, lipid management as well. So, you know, making sure I've got that scope of practice in place to be able to expand my scope of scope overall. Um, and I think that's been really quite useful. And where I have been very lucky is that the the clinical practitioners that I've been working with, so the multidisciplinary team I've been working with, uh, be it within general practice or be it within the hospital setting, um, they have been very supportive. So having that um, medical or non-medical supervision has been really, really quite um, useful and has been very supportive. And I think that's going to be the crucial element of this is how do we get <clears throat> the right supervision uh, for anyone that wants to do um, uh, the independent prescribing course. And this is going to be a challenge uh, for uh, England as well. So as we embark on 2026 uh, and, and even now where we're trying to uh, skill up more community pharmacists to become independent prescribers. Um, and this is part of a Pathfinder um, early vanguard um, kind of project that's happening in England. Um, you know, how do we find the right level of um, pharmacists that are already prescribers that can offer that clinical supervision? Now, we know there's a lot of com clinical community pharmacists out there. How do we how do we get the, the proportionate number of supervisors as well? And that's going to be a challenging any care setting, any country, I believe, if that's going down this route around independent prescriber. So what we need to do is for those that are prescribing or have got the course, they prescribe, they become proficient and they become those leaders to be able to provide that clinical supervision to the next gen of potential prescribers as well. 
if we don't have that equation uh, working in um, equilibrium, then we will come into challenges where you potentially have more people that want to do the course, but the less, but we haven't got the number of supervisors that are actually required to support them. So need to look at proportions of that. So whichever country is looking at developing something like this, this is going to be a challenge. Um, and it's it's how do you phase it and how do you manage this program overall uh, to launch, to progression and continual development as well. And I think that's really, really important. So you've been mentioning about uh, moving into hypertension. How has how has that process looked for you? So working in one yeah. area and then moving to another, what does that involve? Yeah. So I think from from my from my viewpoint, that's that's I've been really again really fortunate where I've had GPs that uh, general practitioners, medics that have been had a keen interest in this, and the bids has been a strategic move. Uh, locally as well as nationally around hypertension um, screening and identification of these patients uh, because hypertension is a silent killer and we what we want to do is identify these patients up put them on the right medicines and optimize their care as well so um, in the first instance um, yes this was a organizational um, objective which meant that I had to upskill really quite quickly we developed stranded operating procedures um, as pharmacists we like a good standard operating procedure. Um, so we developed a generalized standard operating procedure within our primary care network where I uh, where I where I'm a chief pharmacist. And in doing so, I undertook a, a postgraduate uh, module um, uh, and developed myself from a theoretical base as well to make sure that I'm up to standard and, and knew what the national guidelines said and also ensure that uh, I've done the background reading around pharmacology and the, the ongoing management when I'm consulting with these patients. The whole idea was it uh, of it was uh, to undertake at least you know 10 to 20 reviews under the supervision of a of a GP so I would review the patient to undertake their you know, blood pressure readings, maybe give them a blood pressure diary, bring them back um, and then consider starting on the right blood pressure medicines. But I'd be doing that under supervision of a GP in the first instance until I became confident and competent as well. So in doing so, in taking that process, and it does take time, you know, um, there is no off the shelf pharmacist that's going to be with due respect that's going to be good to go then and there it does take time and you know this is a shift for, in practice for us you know uh, as pharmacists as well so we need to be given the time and space um whilst managing our well-being as well to be able to develop in this in this space which is really really important so having that right supervision and support has been really quite fundamental to me becoming that competent and confident prescriber and now we're ready to be able to see those patients, however, within a certain kind of um, area, you know, so maybe starting off patients on ACE inhibitors uh, and, and or ARBs and scaling them up um, and, and managing them accordingly. Uh, and when I get to a point where I think that, you know what, this is out of my scope or my boundaries of competency, then I'm, I've got that support there where I can actually defer to or scale it up to the GP and say, look, I've done this now. I'm at my ceiling. How can I seek further support? Uh, does this patient need further intervention from yourself, for instance? So that's that's the manner in which I did it. Um, you know, I, I would absolutely encourage hands on learning. 
experiential learning and actually getting getting in um taking the blood pressures giving the blood pressure diary um doing the theoretical training as well which is important make sure you've got the background in this and there's plenty of courses out there we're fortunate uh, within england to have various providers that are providing um, currently, uh, a lot of this education training around cardiovascular disease, we know that's a big, big issue, um, not just uh, locally, nationally, but internationally. So there's ample courses out there that'll be able to facilitate this training. And um, that that's absolutely what I would advise is that experiential plus the theoretical and joining it, getting, getting in there, doing the doing, as I like to call it, and um, developing yourself appropriately making sure you've got clear-cut scope of practice yeah yeah so there's uh, you know there's these documents are available on the net as well so you'll be able to identify and find them around bond boundaries of practice or scope of practice agreements so you could actually or you could actually design your own and you know having that scope and discussing it with your uh, supervisor is really really important as well so they know where you're at and what your journey is going to look like and and you know having that support is going to be vitally important is your cpd any different um as an independent prescriber um i think it it it, it grows every year the list continues to develop uh, and what i find is that from where it was when I first graduated to maybe just learning about asthma or learning about COPD and reading a guideline and then going and doing an audit uh, or, or, you know, discussing, you know, uh, medication, discussing um, these medicines in a medication review. This, my CPD has now evolved into something that's enhancing my skills and enhancing the skills that I can offer to the healthcare setting that I'm actually working in. Uh, and that, that's really, really important. And what I'm finding is that my curiosity is increasing as well. So if I'm, yes, I'm aligning to the organisation objectives or the national objectives around specific disease areas. But if I wanted to spin off into, say, heart failure, um, I could do. Um, and having that support infrastructure around me is really vitally important to be able to uh, split off and in, into that and go and learn and then go and develop and then go and implement. Or if I wanted to say, for instance, enhance my skills in COPD, you know, how do how do I go about that journey? So my my uh, CPD, it, um, you know, when I was working in general practice was very much about how do I enhance myself and what value can offer to the organization and more more importantly what value can offer to the patients which is which is what it's all about um yeah and can you tell me a little bit about what this has meant for pharmacy technicians in the UK what have their opportunities been so um pharmacy technicians are a vital part of the pharmacy workforce and what this has actually meant is that the pharmacists can move away potentially from doing um, a lot of lot more of the operational um, tasks uh, within a pharmacy setting, be it community pharmacy or be it in, within general practice or even in hospital. So they can focus on the clinical management of the patient, which has meant that there's enhancements in the role from a pharmacy, te pharmacy technician viewpoint. That doesn't need to meant to say when I say operational, it just means that they're undertaking enhancement in dispensing of medicines and so forth. 
they're actually taking on more clinical duties as well. So for instance, in hospital settings, they're taking on more medicines management roles. Um, they're taking on more governance and safety roles as well. This space that's created has meant that there's, a, as a consequence, there's space for pharmacy technicians to continue to develop. And what there has been, there has been some higher education institutes and organisations within England that are offering a clinically enhanced pharmacy technician course. So almost like a postgraduate course that says, right, <clears throat> we've got pharmacy technicians that are at a certain level that are interested in clinical management, um, you know, uh, of say for, say for instance a specific disease area it's how do you take them on that journey and those higher education institutes that are doing that I absolutely applaud them and because I, I think it's taking the pharmacy technician um, qualification which is regulated and it's a recognised professional profession to that next level which is absolutely required um, because we know that this has to be a multidisciplinary team approach. It can't just be pharmacist led, it has to be pharmacy led, which is really, really important. So there's ample opportunities here for pharmacy technicians and this has created that space, has created that gap to fill uh, positively. Um, but I, what I would like to see is more higher education institutes and organisations supporting the clinical development of pharmacy technicians. There are some courses out there um, but I'd like to see more uh, because the more of these courses are available, the more access, the more access these pharmacy technicians will be able to get um, to to get onto these courses and to develop themselves and to offer enhanced care. Um, you know, you can we can see the direction of travel where, you know, I, I'm hoping one day that the 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 GP or general practitioner does the diagnosis and then the medicines prescribed by the community pharmacist, say, for instance, uh, in, in its entirety, and the ongoing management is managed for that long term condition by the community pharmacist. That'll be the utopian dream for me, uh, um, you know, and then we can throw in a, a bit of pharmacogenomics in there as well to make sure that uh, the patient's getting uh, the right medicine that's actually going to work for them um, from a genomics viewpoint as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing and I'm getting you know, blue sky thinking here, but I think it's really important. I think we need to have a vision. We need to have a direction of travel as well. And I think, you know, pharmacies, pharmacy is going to be well placed to deliver that as well. Uh, not just that traditional dispensing function. Um, uh, and, and yeah, just to reiterate again, pharmacy technicians, there has to be this positive advancement in their qualification uh, as well as a consequence of how pharmacists are going to be developing and offering the services in the future. And can you tell me a bit more about the Pharmacy First scheme? Yeah, so the Pharmacy First scheme is is going to be launched very, very soon. It's going to be launched on uh, the 31st of January. And this 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 is going to be a transformative journey and shaping the landscape of how primary care potentially is going to be operating. It they you know it is a groundbreaking scheme uh, for community pharmacy, allowing a broad range of uh, of services, not that traditional dispensing. And what this is going to be focusing on is some common conditions such as uterus, conjunctivitis, uh, dermatological conditions where the pharmacy for community pharmacy will be the first point of call and contact for that patient. It also enable 
for um, general practice uh, and other healthcare settings to direct their patients to um, the community pharmacy also. This at the moment can be done electronically to ensure that the pharmacy is reimbursed through, through a service called the Community Pharmacy Consultation Service. But the new and enhanced version of this is going to be the Pharmacy First, which is going to be looking at further expanding roles. So this is just, you know, almost like phase one almost. And you can see how um, under, you know, certain areas where we could start to not just look at coughs, colds, sore throats, uh, skin conditions, we can start to broaden out that horizon around contraceptive management uh, and so forth as well, which is starting to come into play in certain uh, community pharmacy settings as well. And what will this would also do as well as further enhancements around the public health messaging. So there might be specific public health services that maybe public health want to commission and pay for community pharmacy to deliver, such as traditional services such as smoking cessation, which are really important, weight management and advice. Um, but the emergency supply of medicines as well, you know, patients run out of medicines in the emergency situation and pharmacies there as a first port of call when, you know, you, you, you have run out of your medicines and providing that autonomy to uh, pharmacists to be able to support the patients in the best possible way. So what's going to be the consequence of pharmacy first going live? Well, improve patient satisfaction. This is going to be really vitally important. You know, from a minor ailment or minor conditions viewpoint, pharmacy first is, is going to be the, 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 the first port of call. Reducing in general practice workload, we know within England uh, and within the UK, general practice, general practitioners are absolutely at breaking point. They are, their workload is enormous, notwithstanding that community pharmacy workload is also equally um, challenged at the moment with our workforce and uh, evolving workforce as well. So the whole idea is to reduce that general practice workload, ensure that community pharmacists get reimbursed for the pharmacy first service in the most appropriate way and to deliver cost effective healthcare as well. You know, we want to ensure that the right person gets to see the right healthcare professional at the right time. And that's really, really important. But I think there's some challenges here. I think what we need to do is we need to ensure that the communication uh, around this service happens effectively. It happens in a timely manner, uh, dependent on what sector uh, that we're trying to influence. In this instance, it'd be general practice and primary care to ensure that they're aware of the services and what the service is there to offer. The last thing we want to do and last thing that needs to happen is that the patient turns up at the community pharmacy and the pharmacy is not able to offer that support or that advice or prescribe or um, you supply the medicine in the, in the in a timely fashion. So we need to make sure the communications and, and the strategic goal have been communicated in the most effective way. But it's absolutely um, a timely service uh, and, and the launch of it is going to be vitally important. As we know, the National Health Service within England is significantly stretched. So this is a real good opportunity um, to, to develop um, community pharmacy and take it to that next stage, which has been long awaited, frankly speaking. So I thought I might ask you, you mentioned funding there a couple of times, so I thought mm. I'd ask you about that. There's been some information coming out about a number of pharmacists that are worried that pharmacies are not so financially viable. So I guess I'd ask about the funding and, and even for um, the Pharmacy First scheme. Yeah, so the funding comes from national, uh, from NHS England, um, uh, and the the whole 
area around pharmacy, optometry and dentists devolve down to what we call integrated care systems. And eventually it will be them that will be managing that system and providing commission services. But in the first instance, it's very much uh, an initiative England and um, a Community Pharmacy England initiative to uh, fund this um, scheme. There is a big void in one, the workforce, and two, um, the reimbursement around how community pharmacy is reimbursed for the services it offers. It is still a significantly volume-driven business, so it is about how many, how many items you can dispense. Um, we know margins are being cut, so the reimbursement for a specific drug, you know, particularly around the brand, uh, sorry, particularly around the generic medicines uh, have been lowered quite significantly. So that traditional margin and that buying power for what the community pharmacy would buy that drug in at, that generic in at, has significantly reduced, which absolutely has a net impact on the sustainability and viability of, of community pharmacy. And I think what there needs to be is a continued review and a contractual negotiations at a national level to ensure that community pharmacies reimbursed in the most appropriate way. It, I don't think that's the case yet, but I think we need to start somewhere. I think pharmacy first demonstrating its value to the health economy um, and um, our patients, more importantly, is going to be the vital start. So I absolutely agree that there are pharmacy closures and, and which is concerning to me. Uh, we've got a, we've got a challenged workforce as well, um, but you know, ensuring that pharmacy work and pharmacy first is successful is going to be vital in that journey overall. So that is the majority of my questions. So please tell me what else I haven't asked you or what else you might like to share. I think I've rambled on enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've, we've gone through the historical uh, outlook, we've gone through the legislation, we've gone through the aims and objectives of the pharmacy first we've talked a bit about the funding gaps uh, around pharmacy first we've talking about spoken about the evolution of the independent prescribing course you know I think the one thing um, where we haven't spoken about so this is so what what some pharmacists are doing now as well is looking at uh, focusing and developing themselves as advanced clinical practitioners or advanced clinical pharmacists. And this, uh, again, is a master's course that's undertaken uh, in a higher education institute um, that looks at the pillars of advanced clinical practice, including leadership, research, which is which are really vitally important as, as we start to evolve and develop our uh, areas of practice. What the idea behind this is to um, not just specialise in the area that you are looking at focusing on. So, say, for instance, uh, you know, minor injuries units or minor, minor injury conditions and so forth. But it takes you to that level, next level around enhancing your clinical skills. So an independent prescribing course gives you that baseline as such. But this provides you that further enhancement around the leadership, the, the research 
which you probably don't get to experience in its entirety at the in the independent prescribing course overall and what we're finding is there are a number of pharmacists that are moving into what we call the acp roles and uh, that are absolutely supporting um you know various out of hour service provision uh working in hospital environments in emergency departments <clears throat> and as well as in general practice as well so almost providing not just that medicines experience but that acute management or that specialist interest uh, area as well around that area of competency as well so acp is 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 one of those uh, initiatives uh, advanced clinical practice uh, or pharmacists is is one of those areas that are are currently being explored and currently being undertaken by pharmacists within um, england and the uk as well thank you that I didn't even know that. Um, yeah. Is that anything else, or did I capture everything? No, I think we captured everything. And I think you know we've got we've got a challenge workforce overall, uh, and I think that's the case everywhere, and not just within pharmacy, but the whole you know the whole healthcare system. And it's just how do we how do we spread ourselves in such a way and position ourselves to make ourselves accessible to patients and be able to manage and support our patients in the most effective way. And that doesn't necessarily mean to say that, you know, everything needs to go to a community pharmacy or everything needs to go to a general practice. You know, we need to make sure that the patients are engaged and informed in the right way so they can make an informed and empowered decision around where they want to go. At the moment, there is this perception that I can go to my general practitioner, my primary health care for everything, yeah, health and social care. May have been the case traditionally some many, many years ago. However, the system's stretched, can't do that. We have to ensure our, our healthcare professionals are seeing uh, the right patients uh, and then the patients are empowered to make that decision around where they want to go to receive that care as well. So, yeah, there's good. There's a challenge there. There needs to be some balance. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.